0: You're listening to Ono oh No Lit Class. Dead authors, fresh takes,
1: and the epilogues you never knew you needed.
0: to Ono Lit Class, the podcast that was going to do a Thanksgiving special on the Pilgrim's Progress before actually looking up and learning what the Pilgrim's Progress was about. I'm Megan. I'm RJ. And happy Thanksgiving to our American listeners and to everyone outside the US. Happy Thursday. Happy Ono Lit Class Thursday. It's always, it's always a good Thursday when it's an Ono Lit Class Thursday.
1: I wanted to bring you people pilgrims. Megan vetoed it.
0: It's not the same thing. They're not like pilgrim pilgrims, like Thanksgiving pilgrims. It's just a dude and Jesus.
1: Look who's a pilgrim essentialist.
0: Really? Really? You're, you're, this is what you're going to do to me on, on this holiday? They would
1: have welcomed me on the Mayflower. They would have left you behind. You're yeah. a non-believer.
0: Yeah, they would have let you on the Mayflower. Yeah. Yeah. The repressed, weird, prude Puritans. They They would have been super down with you. Yeah. You would have grabbed one dude's ass and they would have thrown you over the side. Why would you even want to go on the Mayflower? (laughs) It would be the lamest time ever.
1: You know, Meg.
0: They're so lame, England kicked them out.
1: Now, if you're throwing a cool party and you're worried too many people are going to show up, you know what you're going to do? Why
0: is that ever a worry?
1: You know what you're going to do? Oh, guys, this isn't cool. This is going to be boring. It's going to suck. That's what they wanted you to think.
0: Wait, 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 okay. So you're saying that the Puritans pretended to be extremely uptight and lame so that no one would come to America and ruin their party.
1: Correct. Because look what happens when the Brits came. They you you know you, you
0: know historically that that's not true. In fact, what we're going to be talking about today shows that that's not true at all.
1: You're talking about we a book that was written in 1950-something, like, you know, 300 years about after That's something That
0: really happened in 1692, <laughs>
1: That's what they want you to think.
0: Who's they?
1: Apparently, Arthur Miller.
0: Okay, hey. So we decided to celebrate the uh, the Thanksgivings, the anniversary of the uptight English people coming to America and murdering any natives they happened upon. and
1: they, Some of them lived. They didn't murder them all. They only murdered the bad ones.
0: Ah, yeah, yep. That's it. That's what happened.
1: How they define bad, unclear
0: definitionary rules unclear who knows all i know what i was taught in school was that the pilgrims were very cold and very hungry and then the the squanto came over the the squanto and was like i have this cornucopia it's a weird wicker shaped horn and there's some grapes and a turkey in it and now we're all friends we're celebrating this bullshit holiday by taking america back to its puritan roots by Way of 1953.
1: Megan's not thankful for anything. Not
0: a damn thing. We're talking about Arthur Miller's play, The Crucible. AKA, and that's why we don't spread gossip, kids. AKA, let's murder a whole bunch of people with only the word of these catty teens to go by. AKA, thinly veiled metaphor for McCarthyism. Which we'll get to. I deeply remember reading this in 10th grade. This was sold to me by my 10th grade English teacher using her favorite tactic, sexiness. The Great Gatsby was all about sexy, jazz-age people being terrible to each other. The Scarlet Letter was literally, actually about sexy, sinful pilgrims, and now The Crucible, which she billed as a soap opera about the Salem witch hunts where everyone is very catty and sexy. In retrospect, I'm not sure if my English teacher just had no idea how else to sell these books to a bunch of puberty-stricken teenagers, or if she just had a really weird personal interpretation of sexy.
1: I remember Death of a Salesman.
0: You read that one in school? Oh, yeah. Oh, see, I've never, I know nothing about Death of a Salesman. I've never read it. I have no idea what it's about. Presumably, a dead salesman.
1: Yeah, I don't like when you put spoilers in the title. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> well now i know like, how am i supposed to get invested in this salesman i know he's gonna die
1: you know titanic becomes people die on a boat <laughs> armageddon only for bruce willis
0: <laughs> armageddon parentheses only for bruce
1: willis i see dead people in parentheses bruce willis <laughs> there's a lot of bruce willis movies you can pretty much ruin by just putting his name in the title
0: well, except it'd be like Die Hard parentheses, but for Alan Rickman. Bruce via, Bruce it via Bruce Willis. Via Bruce Willis. I'm struggling to think of other Bruce Willis movies.
1: Look who's talking! It's, <laughs> it's Bruce Willis. It's <laughs> <and his> sperm.
0: <laughs> parentheses. It's Bruce Willis. <laughs> I don't know. I guess the mystery is we we don't know how the salesman dies. Maybe a piano falls on him. Don't don't tell me. And I also refuse to do even the most cursory of Googling to find out. I'm just gonna... That's my version. That's my headcanon. Piano just lands on this poor salesman and the play comes to an end. Yep. But yeah, The Crucible is a really fun play to read in school. And I really enjoyed it because, you know, when you do a play in class, everybody has to read the parts and all that. And it doesn't have the difficulty of Shakespeare where you're just trying to kind of figure out what's going on. And also, there's a whole lot of screaming involved. And, you know, you get to, if you're John Proctor, you get to call someone a whore in your class. So it's just a really good time for everybody, and I remember enjoying it. Before we can talk about The Crucible, we gotta tell you about the guy who wrote it, and also there's a little bit of historical context necessary. Because while this seems like it's just a play about Puritan witch hunts, it's all metaphor. Like most good literature things. RJ?
1: Arthur Asher Miller. He was born October 17th, 1915 on the streets of Harlem in New York City. This is the first piece of evidence to let you know AA don't take shit.
0: I was, You know, I was wondering how you were going to do this one. So we're going with AA, huh?
1: Arthur Asher.
0: Are you doing this specifically just to Double A. piss off Paul from Varmints? I could call him Artie. Wow, I really don't know which is worse. Can you just call him Arthur? Can we go back to the days where you just called them by their first names like they were your buddies and not this kid whose lunch money you're stealing in the hallway?
1: All right, well, I was going to call him AA throughout, double A, but now I'm just going to mix it up. You're never going to know what's coming out.
0: Paul's going to post up more hate mail on Facebook, and it's only going to make you stronger.
1: So Artie was the second of three kids. His parents were named Augusta and Isidore. I say Arthur won that lottery and avoided being named something weird.
0: This is true.
1: You see, Arthur is not only tough, but he's a winner.
0: Okay. N- usually you aren't so positive about the authors that we speak of.
1: Oh, he didn't get named Augusta or Isidore.
0: Well, yeah, but you say he's tough and a winner. These are, these are superlative oh, qualities. He was
1: born in the Harlem on the streets and he survived. It was like 1913. Yeah. All right. Old timey tough. <laughs> anyway, he was born into a Polish-Jewish family. His dad was born in what is now Poland. Then it was Austria-Hungary, World War I hadn't really happened yet. Um, and his mom was born in New York. But her parents actually came from the same town as Artie's dad.
0: Oh, small world. It is. After all.
1: And there's only one of them. So you should love it. It's
0: true. Can't fault you for that.
1: So the family at least during Arthur's youth, was doing pretty well for itself. Dad owned a factory that manufactured women's clothing. The family had a nice place in Far Rockaway and even (laughs) was able to afford a chauffeur. Yeah, we're talking about chauffeur money. Big baller shit right here. That
0: is. That's some fancy stuff.
1: Well, as it seems for everyone we talk about, the good times have to come to an end at some point. No
0: one is ever allowed to be a writer and also be happy.
1: And not only did it end for uh, Artie, but really for everyone. You see, he was born in 1915 and he was born during a pretty good time, financially speaking in America. But then when he was 14 in 1929, the markets crashed and America entered into the Great Depression. Brought to you by Pfizer.
0: Yeah.
1: Man, can you believe that Pfizer bought the trademark to the Great Depression?
0: <laughs> Where is this coming from?
1: That's a mega baller <laughs> money right there. Oh, uh, Okay. In any case.
0: So he could have been, he was hanging out with uh, Ray Bradbury writing stories on butcher paper, right?
1: Well, in any case, this is a good segue into this bi weekly episode of Financing with RJ. Oh, God. Depressions. I'm going to help you plan for the next Great Depression. So, what can you do to help yourself survive a downturn in the market? Ah. Well, okay. don't forget RJ's four simple financial tips. Uh oh. Uh, what are they? Diversify. Okay. Invest. Okay. Consolidate. Okay. And kill. Now, say it again. (laughs) Diversify. Diversify. Invest.
0: Invest. Consolidate. consolidate, And kill. Kill.
1: Now, you diversify your holdings, a mixture of bank accounts, precious metals, and stocks.
0: So, the the gold I've got
1: buried in the front yard. You invest about 40% of your savings into the market. You consolidate your earnings and decide the best place to keep them. And lastly...
0: Buried in the front yard.
1: And lastly, you kill... Anyone or anything that leads to losses for you and yours.
0: Okay, are you sure this isn't Financing with Walter White?
1: Until next time, this has been Financing with RJ. (laughs) Remember to love each other, but more importantly, to love the feeling of money in your wallet.
0: Oh my god.
1: This Financing with RJ was brought to you by the Great Depression. Feeling down? Losing money? Don't worry, Pfizer has a pill for that. Pfizer, the pill people
0: trouble for so many different reasons.
1: (laughs) So anyway, back to Arthur Mr. Miller, Artie, double A, and his now broke crew. They lost their chauffeur, which sucks. Mm. Not only that, but Arthur had to start delivering bread before going off to school every morning to help the family pay the bills. I mean it's no working in the steel mills Mm. like Chucky D or anything like that. But this was a kid who had a silver spoon in his mouth and his chauffeur's mouth and now he had bupkis. Ah, uh, but remember, Arthur was born on the streets of Harlem. Yeah. He, he had what they called back in the day, gumption.
0: Well, seeing as he was a Polish Jew, they probably referred to it more as chutzpah.
1: So, little Artie did not fold. He saved up his precious little pennies, and he likely followed RJ's plan to financial success. Murder? And he paid his way through college. And did he not just go through any college? He went to the one, the only, the University of Michigan. Hero. Oh,
0: okay, sure, why not? You never want to get, let any details about yourself slip, but you'll let everyone know you got a boner for Michigan.
1: Champions of the West. Uh huh. Initially, he was majoring in journalism, and he was writing for the school newspaper. Towards the end of his undergraduate career, he switched to being an English major and wrote his first play. He kept close ties to his alma mater throughout his life. Eventually, he named two awards after himself, one for writing, and one for dramatic writing and awarded them to Michigan students that best exemplified what it was he enjoyed. He also strong-armed Michigan to name their theater after him. So in short, Arthur Miller would go to the Arthur Miller Theater to give out the Arthur Miller Awards. So baller.
0: That That is something that we can all one day aspire to.
1: Now, when Arthur graduated from college in 1938, he planned on joining the Federal Theater Project. The project was an agency created by the New Deal with the goal to add art to the lives of Americans in rural America and also to help artists get a steady wage. But the plan fell through when the US Congress nixed the agency because Congress was afraid the project was going to get infiltrated by communists, who would then use the project to create pro communist art and funnel money to commie sympathizers.
0: Oh boy, alright, there's a lot of communism coming up.
1: There are no lows. An art-loving comedy Pinko, won't sink to. <laughs> Given this and the play at the heart of today's episode, it may be worthwhile to discuss the Red Scare, or as I like to call it, Americans quivering at the thought of other people thinking <laughs> something different.
0: Yeah, it occurred to us, that I think we kind of brushed up against McCarthyism in another episode or two, that people might not know what that is, especially if you're not American, you might not be familiar with it, and also, like, is
1: old... <laughs> So there were actually two separate Red Scare's. The first Red Scare was in the late 19-teens and early 1920s. And generally, it was in response to a number of unions in the U.S. striking and demanding all sorts of crazy things like higher pay, more days off. Filthy commies. Police forces went on strike. Blue-collar workers went on strike. And this threatened the guys who paid the workers and wanted to make big profits. This led to violence on both sides. And in short, it was a shit show. Bombs were mailed to businessmen like John D. Rockefeller and numerous politicians and judges. This all led to May 1st, 1920, when the U.S. Attorney General warned the Bolsheviks and sympathizers were going to hit the streets to try to take over the U.S. Thousands of troops lined the streets, ready for a fight. And then nothing happened.
0: Wah, wah.
1: Instead of this whole thing being some grand scheme, it was kind of just made up with made up evidence, bad espionage, and just angry workers demanding stuff, not some undercover commie takeover. Things quickly cooled down after this. So let's skip ahead to World War II. The U.S. and Russia teamed up to defeat the Axis. Well, after beating the Axis, the U.S. and Russia remembered they really didn't like each other after all, and the Cold War began. Being a Cold War, it was a war using ideology and not fire or something.
0: There were Soviet spies just coming up out of the woodwork and John le writing novels about them all.
1: So since the U.S. was using spies and insurgents, they presumed and probably knew Russia was trying to get influence in the U.S. the same way. And since we haven't really figured out really how to read people's minds yet, people in the government did the next best thing. Just accuse everyone they didn't like of being a communist spy and sympathizer.
0: Yeah, no, apparently there was just an evil, dirty communist crashed around every corner and behind every bush waiting to, like, I don't know, kidnap your children and make them read Karl Marx.
1: Eat dinner at four in the afternoon? Commie. Hate football? Huge commie. Be a black person? Commie and maybe not even deserving of basic human rights. The front man behind the government's push was Joseph McCarthy. He was a U.S. senator, and he was instrumental in creating the House Un-American Activities Committee. Basically, this committee would either accuse people of being seditious towards the U.S. or conduct hearings to figure out who has been seditious.
0: You were seditious if you were, oh, I don't know, gay, had any different opinions from McCarthy and his buddies. If you were the media and you did a story like, wow, uh, McCarthy seems to kind of be going overboard with this communism business. And you would just be like, you're commies.
1: So people did face real punishments as the result of the committee. A lot of time, they were found in contempt for either not appearing or doing what the committee asked or by being unable to, you know, prove a negative. The problem was, for those accused, they had to prove their thoughts were pure and not seditious. You really can't. Anyway, this went on for nearly a decade. The thing that caught most of the committee's ire was Hollywood and media in general. One such statement from the committee was the following warning, and I quote in full, The Reds have made our screen, radio, and TV Moscow's most effective tool in America. The Reds of Hollywood and Broadway have always been the chief financial support of communist propaganda and Our own films made by red producers, directors, writers, and stars are being used by Moscow in Asia, Africa, the Balkans, and throughout Europe to create hatred of America. Right now, films are being made to craftily glorify Marxism and One-Worldism. They are being piped into your living room and are poisoning the mind of your children under your ever-watching eyes.
0: Which is definitely why everyone who was a kid in the 50s grew up to be a communist. Also, if all this rhetoric sounds really familiar to you, it's because we live in an endless cycle of misery.
1: Megan, we're friends with the Russians now.
0: (laughs) Oh, yeah, we're we're just big old, big old pals. Or what, I guess now people say socialism instead of communism. Here's the socialist president. That means that we need to set everything on fire until we get another president who lets Putin sit in his lap and call him pretty and... All right, we're getting off topic. It's a good thing we left all this shit behind in the 50s, right?
1: Eventually, McCarthyism and the Second Red Scare came to an end, but not before a lot of lives were ruined due to usually baseless accusations. Anyway, back to Arthur.
0: I was going to say, Well, how it it ended was that the government, even the government got tired of McCarthy's shit and they censured him, which essentially means that everyone in the Senate got together and voted to formally and publicly condemn McCarthy as a big, dumb, time-wasting asshole. And so nowadays, his name, you know, when you hear the phrase McCarthyism, it means bullshit accusations built on spreading fear and pressuring people into obedience and conformity.
1: Anyway, back to Arthur. Back to Arthur. So being unable to join the suspected commie art project, he did the most American thing possible. He began working at the Brooklyn Navy Yard. You know, I think that's what a goddamn commie would try and do to cover his tracks. (laughs) Yeah. 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 So while working at the Navy Yard, perhaps spying for the Ruskies, Arthur continued to write plays. He also began to write for CBS Radio. When World War II broke out, Arthur was unable to serve due to a high school football injury that ruined his left knee. Instead, he found a fine lady for himself and got married and got to making kids. His first wife was named Mary Slattery. Maybe Slattery.
0: Yeah, you had a hard time with that one. Slattery. Slattery.
1: And she was with Arthur when he first uh, began to hit his stride and hit it big. But as happens, once Arthur was big, he had to trade in the old model for a new one.
0: Wow, could you have put that in a worse way?
1: But Mary shouldn't feel too bad as she was replaced with Marilyn Monroe.
0: Nah, that's a rough competition. It
1: would be like me trading in Megan for Gal Gadot or Dame Judi Dench. Megan wouldn't allow to be hurt. Only impressed.
0: Which I'm going to trade you in for Gal Gadot. You got that shit backwards.
1: Not uh, James Duty Dench?
0: D- Jame Duty Dench? Dame. <laughs> Pretty sure you can only woo her if you can say her name properly, so uh, I think I'm safe.
1: Marilyn wanted to have a family of her own. She even converted to Judaism for old Arthur. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Marilyn told a friend, quote, I can identify with the Jews. Everybody's always out to get them, no matter what they do, like me. What? See, (laughs) Marilyn felt a strong connection with the Jewish people. So, like most of Hollywood at the time, Arthur and Marilyn got swept up in this House Un-American Activities Committee investigation. What got Arthur in trouble was actually writing the Crucible. You see, the Crucible was a hit, and it was performed across the pond in jolly old England. Well, to get there, Arthur needed a passport. Initially, he was denied a passport to go, And then the members of the House Un-American Activities Committee saw that this was a chance to actually get Arthur in and testify. After all, they could give him what he wanted, a passport. And the play being about, well, McCarthyism, they also wanted to give Arthur a piece of their minds.
0: Yeah, he cast Joseph McCarthy as a horrible, manipulative, nice sociopathic teenage girl. Please, they're an act of vengeance you can win a Tony for.
1: So Arthur was subpoenaed to name names of people he suspected. When he refused to comply, he was found guilty of contempt and denied a passport, although his conviction was overturned a year later during appeals. Not long after this, Arthur and Mer- Marilyn divorced. Supposedly, Marilyn was using a lot of drugs. It was a bad scene, and Arthur couldn't get her to stop, so he married another woman. No idea how to say this name.
0: All right. What are, we, work on? What are we working Inge with here? Inge. 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 I-N-G-E. I- I- Inge.
1: Inge.
0: Inge. Inge. I'm going with-
1: is she sw- Swedish?
0: Danish?
1: I have no idea. Anyway, the two of them were married for 50 years until she died.
0: Okay, third time's a charm.
1: During the second half of his life, Arthur continued to write and publish. He's best known as one of the most accomplished American playwrights ever, and he is best remembered for The Crucible and Death of a Salesman. He died in 2005 due to bladder cancer and congestive heart failure. Now, a couple odds and ends about Arthur. He was a father-in-law to Daniel Day-Lewis. He also fathered a child with his third wife named Daniel. That Daniel was born with Down Syndrome, and at Arthur's request was basically institutionalized his entire life. Wow. Out of sight, out of mind. That's shitty. It should be noted, Daniel Day-Lewis visited his brother-in-law Daniel quite a bit and tried to convince Arthur to have other Daniel be a bigger part in the family, but Arthur never relented. So, the moral of the story is that Daniel Day-Lewis has ethics, and Arthur sent his own son away due to mental acuity issues.
0: I'm glad Daniel Day-Lewis wasn't a fucker, you know, he can still, he's, he's a good dude. I mean, he's one of those guys I feel like you look at him, he's like a chill dude. Wasn't that, like, he's the one where Martin Scorsese had to, like, hunt him down in Europe because he left America to go be, like, a cobbler in a small European town. And he was like, hey, can you come back and be in Gangs of New York
1: I believe this was the movie The Cobbler starring Adam Sandor.
0: No. I think so. So let's talk about that play, huh? Oh, wait, whoa, whoa, (laughs) we're just going
1: to move on? (laughs)
0: Yes! That's absolutely what we're going to do. So, the play, as she is performed. The play starts in Salem in 1692, with a narrator basically being like, Man, those Puritans, huh? Fled to America to escape religious persecution, only for them to start persecuting... Each other. Deep. Then the play starts for realsies in the home of Reverend Paris. His ten-year-old daughter Betty is sick from a mysterious and unspecified illness that the town doctor can't figure out. The village is rife with rumors of witchcraft and demons and shit, and people are gossiping that Betty was um witchcrafted, bespelled, voodooed, voodooed, <laughs> something. And the good reverend is worried that people won't want him as their reverend anymore if his kids gots the demons. Because, you know, that's what I'd be worried about in that situation. Job security.
1: Well, oh, kids die all the time. You only get one good job in your life, and then you die, so might as well hold on to it.
0: Grim. Paris questions his niece, the 17-year-old Abigail Williams, who, like the actual historical Abigail Williams, was 11 at the time, but Miller aged her up for reasons I'll get into later. So he questions her about how he saw Abigail, Betty, and some other girls, and also Paris' slave, Tituba, in the forest, doing some kind of voodoo demon nonsense. To which Abigail's like, nah, man, we were just dancing. Which, honestly, is probably nearly as bad as witchcraft in, in the Puritan times. And, you know, anyway, it wasn't like we were naked, or whatever, as all witchcraft must be performed, apparently. And Abigail, as we learn, is just a problem child in general, because this illicit and possibly devilish dancing is right on the heels of her getting fired by Goody Proctor, who she was working for as a servant. And Paris is like, "Oh, YOU'RE BESMIRCHING MY NAME! And Abigail's like, "Me BESMIRCHING MY NAME! But then Thomas and Anne Putnam wander into the scene, claiming that their daughter Ruth is also sick, and it's Tituba's fault. Because Anne kept having miscarriages, so she sent Ruth to Tichiba to commune with the spirits of Anne's dead babies. Okay. Then the narrator takes a second to tell us that Thomas is a money-grubbing and terrible, vindictive person, and he's going to accuse people of witchcraft because he wants their land. Because Miller doesn't seem to trust that we'll be able to get this on our own, and needs a narrator to wave his arms up and down and yell, Hey! Hey! This is foreshadowing! You might think this Thomas Putnam dude's a okay but he's super not. Like... Okay, Th- thanks for the heads up. Anyway, Thomas and Antel tell Paris tell the village it's witchcraft already, and that they call this guy named Reverend Hale, renowned witch hunter and or ghostbuster from one town over, to see if he can do anything about it. Then the Putnam servant, a girl named Mercy, pops in to say that Ruth seems like she's getting worse. Everyone leaves the room except Mercy, Abigail, and the bedridden Betty, and then this other teenage girl, Mary, who's currently a servant working for the Proctors, who wanders in to be like, Dude, everyone is talking about witches and shit, and we need to come clean about doing witch stuff because I am freaking out, man. And then Betty wakes up and is like, Yeah, Abigail, you drank blood so that John Proctor's wife would die, and this has all kind of gone too far. And Abigail basically smacks them both and is like, Get your shit straight, girls. All we did in the woods was dance. If anyone asks, Ruth did try to do a little spirit conjuring, what with her ghost siblings, but that's it. And if anyone snitches, they will in fact be getting stitches.
1: So street. So like, thug.
0: <laughs> the other girls are extremely scared of Abigail, who is clearly the Regina George of Puritan, Massachusetts. And also is um why are you looking at me like that? Queen George? Regina George from, from Mean Girls. She was the meanest mean girl. Okay, this is a classic film of our generation. What is wrong with you?
1: never seen that one.
0: My God, it's like I don't even know you. Is this a Scorsese flick? Yes. Martin Scorsese's Mean Girls. Oh. No? It's got Lindsay Lohan. She's student exchange from, from Africa. They ask her why she's white if she's from Africa, and they say, oh, my God, you can't ask people why they're white. <laughs> Just... Take my word for it. She's she's Puritan Regina George and is also drinking blood and trying out some witchery to kill her ex-employer. So, you know, she's a little intimidating to the other girls. And then Betty just kind of faints back into her coma.
1: Sounds like she's a bad dude.
0: She ain't great.
1: Sounds like she's a witch.
0: I don't know where you're getting that from.
1: Talking to dead babies <sighs> and drinking blood.
0: Well, she wasn't the one talking to dead babies. All right, close enough. At this point, John Proctor enters because people are just constantly coming in and out of Betty's room. The narrator, once again not trusting us to our own devices, tells us that John is a steadfast man who is, as is the fashion of the time, if the scarlet letter is anything to go on, racked with a terrible and secret sin. Thank you for the insight, narrator man. I've never seen uh, The Crucible like on stage as a show, so I have not experienced this.
1: You've only seen it in the street?
0: Yes, every day. As a yeah, movie? In the streets. Well, there's no, there's not a narrator in the movie. I'm saying on stage where I assume there's a narrator on stage and that the actors, you know, are doing their thing and they just stop the action for the narrator to look out at the audience and go, this is John Proctor. He has a dark secret. It's
1: weird. He has a huge penis. (sighs) Huge. I'm talking like 10 inches.
0: I hate you. So John's like, Mary, you're supposed to be home doing servant shit. So, you know, GTFO. And Mary leaves and mercy follows and so Abigail and John are alone in the room, not counting uh, comatose Betty. And Abigail's like, hey John, how's it going? And John's like, nope, stop not doing this shit again because apparently John and Abigail had an affair and that's why she was fired from her job as the proctor's servant. Okay, so in the play, John is around like 30-ish. In real life, at the time, he was 60. So Miller saw this 60-year-old and this 11-year-old and was like, Mmm, no, this isn't gonna work. I need them to have fucked. So now they're 30 and 17. Yeah. Anyway, John wants to know what's up with this witch stuff, and Abby repeats that all they were doing in the woods was getting footloose. She gets all needy and like, You still love me?" And John's like, Ew, gross, no. You were a mistake I made, and that's a smart thing for a grown man to say to an emotionally volatile teenage girl. I'm sure this won't come back and bite me in the ass. Shockingly. The narrator does not step in to tell us that actually, yes, it will. Then Betty wakes up and starts shrieking, exorcist style, and and Miller quits beating around the bush and just has the whole fucking town run into Betty's room. A woman named Rebecca Nurse looms over Betty until she shuts up, And Rebecca proclaims that all this witch nonsense is just run-of-the-mill kids being dumbasses. And then everyone starts arguing, and they're kind of arguing about witchcraft, but really, it's just an excuse for them to snipe at each other because EVERYONE IN TOWN FUCKING HATES EACH OTHER for various petty reasons. Mostly just based on who has more money or land, because Puritans are just the worst, you guys. Holy shit. But then, Reverend Hale appears. I guess he just followed the sound of, like, 50 screaming people to this one girl's bedroom. The narrator tells us that Hale thinks he's pretty hot shit, and thinks everything's gonna go like an episode of Kitchen Nightmares, wherein he is Gordon Ramsay, and Salem Village is some shitty restaurant with various health code violations, and he's gonna leave it as a beautiful Michelin-starred establishment. As the villagers all ply Hale with witch-related questions, Rebecca Nurse walks out pointedly, saying that she's too old for this bullshit. Hale asks Abigail what they were up to in the forest, and she triples down on dancing. Paris is like, but I saw you guys had a kettle! And she's like, soup. It was for soup. But there was something moving in it! Frog jumped in. Abigail starts getting nervous, so she blames Tituba the slave, saying, Yeah, maybe Tituba was talking to the devil, but I wouldn't have known because she was doing it in another language. And she tried to make me drink blood. And she uses her evil spirit to make me laugh during church service. Yeah. And Paris is just like, yeah, you know, Abigail does laugh a lot during church. This all checks out.
1: Church could be funny.
0: (laughs) I guess. Yeah. Have you ever been to church? I've never been. I mean, I've been in a church. Uh Uh-huh. Sure, sure. I've never been to a... a They don't
1: welcome your type. Jewish? She-devils. Vaguely queer. What else? The godless type. I don't know. I've been to a Catholic mass. There you go. That was
0: not funny. That was interminable. It lasted a thousand years. Wait, you were there for that. We were in that Catholic mass together.
1: I know, your mind's starting to slip.
0: It's never been there in the first place. Mm-hmm. You know that
1: wasn't fun. You know, okay. Everybody
0: was drinking out of the wine goblet. It was really weird. Oh, What
1: are you going to do with all that fine boy? That's like straight from the source. WWDD.
0: What would...
1: Dracula be- would do. <laughs> <laughs>
0: blah, blah. <laughs> Yep, that's what Dracula sounds like. You, wow, did, you, 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 you did it. <laughs> this was like three episodes ago. You completely forgot what a Dracula sounds like. Wow, wow,
1: wow.
0: Yep, that's...
1: Dracula. Wow, wow.
0: Holy shit. Vlad. Wow. So everyone starts to turn on Titchibo and she freaks out because there's no way in hell she's dying as some white girl scapegoat. And she starts screaming that like, yeah, okay, maybe she was communing with the devil like just a little... But she super loves God and Jesus now, for reals. And also, more importantly, she told the devil so. And the devil was like, whatever, I got way more people working for me, so it must be those people bewitching the girls. And so, of course, everyone wants names. Names of card-carrying people in the Communist Party. I, I mean, a league with Satan. And Tichuba, presumably just looking around the room, names Goody Osborne and Goody Good. That's an unfortunate Puritan name. And Abigail and Betty look around like, wait, shit, this was an option? And they just start going to fucking town like, I saw Goody Bishop communing with the devil. I saw George Jacobs trading friendship bracelets with the devil. I saw Goody Howe tongue kissing the devil. And everyone starts losing their minds and then the scene ends.
1: I just sat there eating my good bar. Your goody good bar?
0: That's a good
1: bar. That's called a goody good bar.
0: It's called a Mr. Good bar.
1: Oh, that's what it was. Yeah, I, I was seeing, I was seeing her eating my Mr. Good bar.
0: I don't see how that's in any way relevant, or what the joke is here.
1: I was adding color to the Which scene.
0: Okay,
1: Mr. Good bar, <laughs> goody good bar. You're delicious. That's a <laughs> sin.
0: <laughs> I saw the devil eating a Mr. Good bar. 2 opens in the Proctor home, where John and his wife Elizabeth are eating a sad dinner. He tries to kiss her and be affectionate, and she's just like, Meh, gosh, wonder why that is. Anyway, we learn that some time has passed since the day all the girls started crying witch, and that now 14 women are in prison for witchcraft. And Abigail has basically become the head of the Witch Accuser Brigade. And Elizabeth is like, you should probably do something about this. And John's like, yeah, I mean, when we were alone, she told me that there hadn't been any witchcraft and it's my word against hers. And don't shit because Elizabeth leans in and is just like, oh, alone with Abigail. Yeah, you left that bit out the first time you told me about it. And John's like, hey, I've put Abigail and the fact that we had hot, dirty, illicit sex behind me. So why can't you? And Elizabeth probably has something to say about that, but then their servant Mary comes in from a long day of not doing servant things but instead being in court with the other witch accusers. She says there are now 39 women in prison, cries, and gives Elizabeth a little ragdoll she made for her while she was sitting around in the courthouse just super worn out from watching women get condemned to death by hanging all day. She also says that she defended Elizabeth after someone accused her of being a witch. Mary won't say who, but Elizabeth and John don't need the narrator to announce it for them.
1: Mr. Goodbar.
0: No, that's, that's a candy and not a person in the play. Elizabeth knows Abigail wants her dead so she can get on that Proctor dick, and she's like, John, go fix your shit. And John's like, Elizabeth, can you not see that I am tormented by my mistakes? Why no! Do you- <laughs> Why do you torture me still? Take it. <laughs> yep, that's, just, just like that. I know you love it! <laughs> I see you, dick. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So she's. Uh, she says that after after that. Oh, says, Christian. <laughs> it has been a while since we referenced that, huh?
1: He's a good old Christian. <laughs> they they, they want the, their they, red room.
0: Yeah, you know what? Christian Grey has his no-no spots during during sex. His sex <laughs> is probably as regimented and filled with rules as Puritan sex.
1: He was the original. Op. Sure, he, he was the Op. You ruined your own <laughs> joke. He was the Op. Original Puritan. Yeah, they're into fogging yeah, themselves it, and stuff too. Yeah. Yeah, like that. Uh, yeah,
0: that like, what's his face from The Scarlet Letter? Who's whipping his own asshole?
1: I was thinking of The Da Vinci Code. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Weren't they that guy was like part of a, a cult? I think
1: Puritanism. <laughs> Not so different (laughs) from being part of a cult. I
0: guess. um, Elizabeth doubles down and she says, go find that evil, horny little teenager and fix your shit. And suddenly, in walks Reverend Hale, because apparently wandering in and out of other people's houses was just something that went on back in Puritan times. Hale proceeds to quiz the Proctors, McCarthy-style, all like, hey, why hasn't your wife been to church this winter? Uh, Because she was sick? Because it's the 1600s and everything is terrible? Why haven't your kids been baptized? Cause I hate the reverend, and I think he's a buttface. Well, recite me the Ten Commandments, then. And John recites all ten except. What do you think's the one commandment that he just? Oh, if I forgot it, slipped my mind.
1: You shall not bear witness to any false idols.
0: No, no, that's not the one.
1: Thou. <laughs> shant. <laughs> shant.
0: I know you're struggling to think of commandments.
1: Way with dogs.
0: <laughs> If that's not a commandment, it ought to be.
1: Thou shalt divide your enemies to defeat them.
0: Okay, is that one of the Ten Commandments or something from Sun Tzu's Art of War? No, the one he forgets is, of course, adultery. Yeah, so he forgets that thou shalt not, you know, fuck people other than your wife. But it's okay, because his wife jumps in to remind him of that one. Sick burn. Hale goes to leave, but Proctor stacks up and is like, hey look, so Abigail told me she's lying about the witch stuff, and Hale wants to know why proctor hasn't said anything till now, and John says, oh, you know, reasons of the non-sin-related variety. And John says he'll testify to it in court, and Hale's like, "Mm, on the one hand, all these people are confessing, and I don't want to look bad. On the other, I'm starting to get the feeling this is all a little suspect. And just then... In the traditional Puritan fashion, half the fucking town just waltzes into the house to yell at Reverend Hale that their family members keep getting arrested for witchery. Including Rebecca Nurse, which everyone thinks is pretty nuts. And Hale's like, uh, uh, remember, Lucifer guy, he was, guys, Lucifer was pretty, and people thought he was neat, but he was a liar. And oh look, it's the constable! And it is. It's Constable Cheever, and he's come to arrest Elizabeth, because Abigail has accused her of witchery. Proctor wants to know what proof they have, and Cheever's like, well... Abigail said she'll have a little weird doll thing for doing voodoo and whatnot. And of course, that's the doll that Mary gave her. Except that Mary comes back and admits the doll is hers because I guess she's had a change of heart. They arrest Elizabeth anyway. And Hale is just super uncomfortable now because this is so not like Kitchen Nightmares. It's more like beat Bobby Flay and Abigail is Bobby Flay and no one can beat her. But John says he will expose the truth and tells Mary that she's going to help because really this is all her fault. You know. Because Mary had an affair with Abigail and then abandoned her, causing Abigail to fixate on Elizabeth as an act of revenge. Oh wait, no, that was John's fault. And then the scene ends. Act 3 is in the church, which has been converted into a makeshift courtroom. Don't read too much into it. Offstage, we hear a judge named Hawthorne. Yes, that same disgraced ancestor of Oh No Lit Class alum, Nathaniel Hawthorne. Being all like, "Blarg, you're all witches, Blarg, hellfire, etc., well, Reverend Hale just sort of like flaps around uselessly like, Hey, hey guys, uh, the law? Law stuff? And he just gets bullied around as various villagers are condemned as witches without, you know, due process and such.
1: What they should do is send them on a Caribbean vacation in Guantanamo. It's nice this time of year. They could keep them there for a while.
0: I'm so glad we don't have problems with denying people due process now.
1: Out of sight, out of mind.
0: Francis Nurse, Rebecca's husband, echoes his wife's sentiment that this whole shebang is built on a bunch of kids being shitheads, but Danforth, the deputy governor, doesn't want to hear that because at this point there's 72 people waiting to be hanged for witchcraft and another 400 in jail on his authority. And wow, won't he look like a dipshit if it turns out there's no actual witch a afoot. And then Proctor and Mary show up and they go back and forth for a while with Danforth and Hawthorne and Mary trying to testify that she and the other girls made everything up. And Proctor and Francis Nurse being like, we have a deposition that 90 people have signed that this is bullshit. And then Reverend Paris wants to round up all those people and question them. And when no one agrees, he's like, this is an attack on the court, prompting Hale to reply. So is anything you don't like an attack on the court? And he's like, yeah, pretty much. They all finally get their shit together and listen to Mary's claims that Abigail and her crew are full of it and that they faked all the choking and fainting and shit. And Judge Hawthorne's like, well, then faint now if you're so good at it. But of course she can't, because, you know, they're putting her on the spot. And that's when inspiration strikes young Abigail once more as she starts shivering, basically, like, elbowing the other girls into doing it, too. Oh no, I'm I'm so cold. It's like someone's freezing me. It must be Mary because she's a witch! Ah! At this point, John Proctor is done in rings with this whole scene. Grabs Abigail by her hair and calls her a whore and says that he knows she's a whore because they did the sex. That's not really how being a whore works, but John's on a roll now and goes on to say that they have to believe he's telling the truth because why would any man ever lie about having sex with someone who's not his wife? And Paris and Danforth and Hawthorne and the whole gang are all looking at Abby and she's like, Yeah, we may! Little, just a scooch. And Proctor says this is why Elizabeth actually fired Abigail in the first place and why she's seeking the vengeance and to just let his wife out of prison already. So this is where things get stupid. They bring out Elizabeth, and you know, purposely without explaining the situation, Danforth just straight out asks her, Why'd you fire Abigail? And Elizabeth's like, I don't know, she was a shitty maid. And I mean, I think she might have flirted with my husband once, maybe. But she doesn't want to condemn Proctor as the horny, dirty boy she knows he is. And so she doesn't say the truth to the point where Danforth is just like, Is your husband a lecher? Is it Elizabeth, I'm winking at you. Is he a dirty, horny boy, Elizabeth? And even though Elizabeth has every reason to say yes, even without knowing what's going on right now, she says no. And Danforth's like, that proves that Proctor was lying. And even as Reverend Hale's just like, bullshit. Oh and then, because things are not yet insane and chaotic enough, Abigail and the other girls start screaming again. And this time, Mary is too scared of them to stand with Proctor. So she falls in line and starts screaming too. And they all accuse Proctor of being in league with Satan. And well, that's good enough for all the adults in the room. And Proctor is taken to jail and the scene ends. The final act is in the Salem Jail. So more time has passed, and Deputy Governor Danforth and Judge Hawthorne have a bone to pick with Reverend Paris. It seems that the Reverend has gotten cold feet about the whole wantonly accusing, arresting, and executing your neighbors thing. Partially out of guilt, as the first bunch of people they hanged were, yes, definitely bad people, totally. Drunks and and sinners, etc. But the people like Rebecca Nurse and John Proctor are good people and they don't deserve to die. And also because Abigail and Mercy stole all his money and ran away to ruin some other village, which makes the whole thing look a bit sketchy in the cold light of day. Where do you think Abigail and Mercy went? I'd like to think they went to Baltimore, so Abigail could star on The Wire. I think she'd be good there. She'd be a good, you know,
1: drug lord and or gang boss. Gotta be street tough, street wise. She's
0: a manipulative, sociopathic person who can inspire an entire town to murder, what was it, final count, like 20 people? And she wasn't even 17 at the time, she was 11.
1: If you aim for the king, you best not miss.
0: Exactly. Girl's going places. Then, Reverend Hale enters the scene, and he he is just a broken man. I really don't have any other cooking show analogies left. I guess, um, he looks like a shitty dish- on on cutthroat kitchen. That works. He pleads with Danforth to pardon those still left to be hanged, and Danforth is like, yeah, no, I get you, man, I feel you, but we've already hanged a bunch of other people for the exact same crime, and we wouldn't want to look like a bunch of hypocrites now, would we? So instead, Hale says he's going to do the devil's work and convince the remaining prisoners to lie and confess themselves as witches to avoid hanging. He thinks showing Proctor his now super pregnant wife, oh yeah, Elizabeth is pregnant, uh, will make him want to confess and stay alive. They bring Elizabeth in and they're like, your husband is going to hang tomorrow. Don't you want to save him? And she's like, eh. And they're like, get your pregnant ass in there and make your husband confess to being biffles with Satan. So John is in a bad way. He's bearded and dirty and just generally icky from living that prison life. Elizabeth tells him that more than 100 people have confessed but that Rebecca Nurse is still refusing to, and also that Giles Corey wouldn't confirm or deny any acts of witchness, so they smushed him to death between some rocks to try to make him confess, because Puritans are fucked up, guys. A brief aside. Yes, that happened to the real, historical Giles Corey. His last words, as they smushed him with rocks? More weight. Fucking hardcore as shit. More weight! Yeah, that's probably how he sounded. Well... It was probably a little more muffled than that. Oh, wait. Yeah, that was, unfortunately, probably more accurate. <laughs> uh, anyway, John- <laughs> Come at me, bro! <laughs> <laughs> Do you even smush, bro? John is like, yeah, you know, maybe I will confess. Unless it would make you think less of me. And Elizabeth is like, dude, I really don't give a shit at this point. You have to forgive yourself. Judge not lest ye be judged, etc., etc. And then she tells him that it's her fault that John had sex with Abigail anyway because she was just so cold and unloving, and so she drove him into the uh psychotic seventeen-year-old's arms. Ugh. Thanks, thanks, Arthur. Thanks for that bit of dialogue. So they go back and forth playing my favorite game from the Scarlet Letter. Now I'm the bigger sinner until he decides to confess, and Danforth and the gang come in with a letter to sign. And then he hems and haws and was like, oh, I didn't know I'd have to sign something. Mm, nope, I'm not going to do that. Verbal confession only. And they're like, fine, just do it so this play can end already. Except. Except.
1: I'm watching most of this. You're, you're
0: mean. You won't play with me. What are you... Why are you watching Praying Mantis snuff porn? Yeah, uh, yes, no, yes, yes, it? yes he's I it! That's how Praying Mantises work. It's fucking weird. Why are you watching this right now? He has no head. Did you not know this was a thing? To kill him after. No, she'll bite the head off while they're still fucking. And he's still going. Yeah. Mm. Why are you continuing to look at it? Amazing. Nature is horrifying.
1: (laughs) All right, I cooked off of it. Okay, good.
0: (laughs) I gotta take your computer away like you're a child and you're not allowed to have computer time.
1: Except. Thank you. You're welcome.
0: (laughs) Midway through his confession, Rebecca Nurse just shows up. Isn't she supposed to be a prisoner? She's just kind of wandering around. Uh, Whatever, she's there now, and she sees Proctor giving in to the man, and she's like, boo, lame, and draws things out even more. And then Dan Firth is like, yeah, no, I changed my mind, actually. I need your signature, it's the only way. Gotta sign the confession. And thank God Proctor signs it, but, yes, but, HE REFUSES TO GIVE THE fucking PIECE OF PAPER BACK TO DANFORTH, AND THEN HE'S LIKE, FUCK IT! I WILL NOT CONFESS. I WILL KEEP MY NAME, AS IT IS ALL THAT I HAVE LEFT, AND WILL DIE WITH SOME AMOUNT OF GOODNESS STILL LEFT IN ME. These fucking extra-ass Puritans. Because now everyone's wondering, like, why the fuck didn't you just do that in the first place, and-, and save everyone a lot of time? Rebecca and Proctor are taken to be hanged, and Hale watches them go with Elizabeth, wondering at what point his life went so very wrong. And then there's a big old drum roll so that we know that John has been hung off stage. And the play ends. And that's the Crucible. It's a bummer. We never know what happens to Abigail. It kind of bugs me.
1: So the Crucible. Now, I don't think they mentioned Indians. Kind of weird. Overlooked that, huh? They weren't there in his play.
0: I mean, they weren't really involved in the witch hysteria historically. Speaking. Maybe they're the I ones who taught
1: them the witchcraft.
0: There was no witchcraft.
1: Yeah, the tree spoke. The wind was a certain color, multiple colors.
0: That is Pocahontas. That's a different thing.
1: Hey, yeah, but John was there. John Smith. One John's another John. Came from a boat, you see. Mm-hmm. Just like the pilgrims, as, as
0: they tend to.
1: Yeah. So, how many different boats were there? Many. No, there was the Mayflower, singular.
0: That's not what. There John, are on a lot not what John Smith came on.
1: What did he come on? The Pinta. <laughs> to santa maria i'm um, on the Nina. really he came from <laughs> <laughs> anyway so the crucible you know why they called it the crucible may that no. wasn't the original title
0: it rarely ever seems to be
1: the devil in boston
0: uh, okay yeah crucible's better devil went down to boston or he was or, looking well, for witches to accuse
1: those familiar spirits
0: that's even shittier what does that mean
1: those witchy spirits
0: yeah that's shitty I mean, the crucible is very vague, but it's a hell of a lot catchier than those familiar spirits and the devil in Baston.
1: Devil in Bastion.
0: Man, the devil's in Bastion. These are not Boston accents that we're doing. Yeah. So why did you change the crucible?
1: Do you know what a crucible is?
0: It's is a hot thing.
1: Yeah. It's basically where you forge steel. You got to heat it real, real quick and then you bang it. And that's the crucible. Okay. So these people being put on trial... Being under pressure, being really hot, makes you sweaty. Palms are sweaty.
0: These weak arms are heavy.
1: Mom's spaghetti.
0: So yeah, it was performed a recorder for TV a few times, but there's only one major film adaptation. It was in 1996, and it was adapted for the screen by Miller himself at the ripe old age of 80, which got him an Oscar nom. And it starred Daniel Day Lewis, apparently his son-in-law, as John Proctor, and Winona Ryder as Abigail Williams. It follows the play fairly closely, but really plays up that sexiness angle between John and Abigail. At one point, Abigail gropes John's junk in the woods. I know this because we watched this movie in my 10th grade English class.
1: I prefer the 1980 TV movie.
0: Who's in that one? No idea. You just wanted to Google something real quick and say it? Well I knew there was more than one was, version. I said that it's been done for TV, but it only has one major film adaptation. You TV's can't listen to the major. words.
1: There's also a uh, multiple TV movies.
0: Yeah, I said that. Who's Richard Armitage? Um He's the Hobbit Man?
1: He's Thorne.
0: Yeah, he's He's the Hobbit Man. I Kruger. Dwarf Man? I don't know.
1: He's John Proctor.
0: Okay. Richard Armitage is John Proctor in the Crucible. In
1: the TV. In your house. In, in this case, England. Ah. Because it was on the BBC.
0: Are you sure it wasn't just a recording of the performance? Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, it's not subtle in its allusions to the communist witch hunts um, of the 1950s, nor was it really meant to be. And it also does kind of take on a secondary dimension when you do remember that he is a Jewish with specifically Polish roots. So yeah, uh, you know, we're coming fresh off of the, the Holocaust and Jewish people being rounded up and hunted and murdered. So there's, you know, there's layers at work here of just sort of general uh, persecution. Because human beings have been awful to each other for always. And so, if there's anything for you to take away on this most bountiful Thanksgiving, it's that we suck. And we've pretty much always sucked. And we're gonna keep on sucking. Crobs for evs. So, grab a turkey leg and think about communism and Arthur Miller being a dick to his son. Way to go, dude. Alright, so we've reached that point in the episode. R.J., so the crucible good or are you a witch
1: i love america apple pie turkey legs stuffing cornbread little black hat with belt buckles on them
0: what does this have to do with whether or not you enjoy the play of the crucible
1: it encapsulates all of it it basically takes america shrinks it down puts it in a little capsule and you can eat it, you
0: can take uh, it i don't think anybody enjoyed cornbread within the confines of the play
1: also, this play was four acts. It's really weird to me. Why is that weird to you? Because it's an even number of acts. Yeah. It should either be three or five. Why? What's wrong with four acts? More symmetrical.
0: Two on each side.
1: Yeah, but then you don't have a middle one.
0: Yeah, that's where the intermission goes.
1: Yeah, I think Shakespeare had it right. I think you're dumb. Five acts.
0: I think you're dumb. Because
1: you got to build. You
0: didn't you... notice when I was reading because I, I I took the trouble to separate them out into acts. You just don't listen. You're too busy watching praying mantises fucking get murdered. Did
1: you people know a praying mantis...
0: They do do know because they're going to hear you freaking the fuck out as you watch it.
1: The Curcible. A plus. Ten turkeys. Five turduckins. Kill me. Some good eats. Thanks, Alton. Yo, Megan.
0: Yo, RJ.
1: What do you think of America?
0: I feel like I made it pretty clear... Several seconds ago, when I I was saying all the bad things, I like the Crucible... I liked The Crucible when I was in high school because it was fun and, you know, shouty and ridiculous, and I still like it for all those things, but I also appreciate it as an adult for all of the layers working underneath it and understanding McCarthyism and, and all that fun stuff, which we really weren't given as any kind of context when we read it in school. Like, it was just a straight thing of, like, here's a play about the Salem Witch Trials and how they all were just fucking nuts. So that's... Kind of weird on my teacher's part, but I feel like we already established that. My it was grade, an English class, my, not my, a history class. Yeah, but you gotta read things in context. And well, anyway, my no teacher don't. was a
1: weirdo. You should. You should be an informed reader. Yeah, no, that's, that's shit where, like, then the text is, like, dead.
0: The text that, is dead. That you
1: read everything as representative of something in the author's life.
0: Well, not necessarily the author's life, but we, we know that he wrote it as a response to McCarthyism. It adds a, a, another textual layer to the story. I mean I guess you don't need to know that to enjoy the story of Puritans are assholes, but like I said, it adds another secondary layer for you to appreciate. I don't know if there still do stage shows of it that you can go see, but I guess maybe try to go see one. It's probably cool. I don't know. I haven't seen one. You can watch the movie. You could watch Winona Rider touch all up on Daniel Day Lewis's junk.
1: Get high on that tryptophan. Tryptophan.
0: Pew, 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 pew. So that'll about do it for this most thankful episode of Ono oh Lit Class. We're thankful for our listeners, aren't we, RJ? Aren't we, RJ?
1: I'm giving them the gift. I'm. So- I can see what's happening here. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> You're welcome.
0: That just gets more timelier every time you do it. Thank it's you. It's a classic now. Thank you guys for listening and, and coming back. If you want to show us that you're thankful, you can do it by subscribing to us on iTunes and leaving us reviews and ratings. And we're, we're getting some of those now. It's kind of really awesome. I think we're almost up to like 20, I think. So, you know, we're thankful for that too. Because it's neat. This week's podcast, uh, p- Pilgrim... Yeah, sure, why not? Is Rhett Hall and his show, the Brain Trust Brothers podcast, where he chats up various interesting people and you get to listen. And I am underselling it because it's really cool like he'll have all kinds of people on there and he's really good at asking interesting questions that provoke equally interesting responses they're just really good conversations and dude's good at interviewing people so give it a listen or else he's going to keep commenting on my facebook posts and going danger and we just can't have that
1: do you enjoy being a fly on the wall Getting to listen in on a conversation and learning things about the people involved? Hi, I'm Rhett Hall and I host the Brain Trust Brothers podcast where every week I bring the audience along to listen in on a conversation between myself and someone that I find interesting. It could be another podcaster, an actor, or just some guy from down the street. You never know what you're going to get, but you can always count on it being fun, informative, and entertaining. You can find the podcast every Tuesday on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or by visiting BraintrustBros.com forward slash podcast. Join me as I try to make the world a better place, one conversation at a time.
0: You can follow us on Twitter or like us on Facebook. Join our Facebook group because there's like 10 people in it that we don't know how to talk to each other. I don't know how to talk to them. I talk to this guy all day. I don't know how to talk to people. You can listen to us anywhere, everywhere, in the walls, and at onelitclass.com. Thank you to Best Day, as always, for our theme song. The next episode will be out on December seventh. Getting into those winter times, except not for us, because it's Florida. Until then, I'm Megan.
1: I'm financing with RJ.
0: Gobble gobble. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Holy shit <laughs> we
1: love you bye now here's the thing Meg. you didn't notice <laughs> diversify invest consolidate oh god
0: damn it you spelled the word dick <laughs> you're very proud of yourself
1: is that gonna be the stinger now Mike?